This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Man, I'm so excited to be here with y'all. This is the best night of the week. We're here for one purpose and one purpose only. Are you guys ready for this? Elevate! Elevate! And you guys sound great. I'm really pumped because we get to talk about the cross tonight. I love that ministry moment. Give him a big hand. That was great. Man, rock on, Micah. Micah, grab yourself a notebook over here on the front of the row since you brought your Bible. I'll put it over here next to the notebooks. If you have your Bibles and your notebooks, get ready. Brace yourself. We're going to be turning to Matthew 27 here in a few minutes. And if you have one of the Elevate Bibles, you have lots of great resources about it. By the time the fire department was called, it was already too late. When the three fire trucks arrived at the scene, the building was already almost engulfed in flames. There were convicts who had escaped and were holding up inside of this warehouse, and they were regularly firing into the circle of law enforcement around the building. But by the time the fire department arrived, The gunfire had long but stopped. The fire chief declared that it was a lost cause. Anyone inside was already overwhelmed by the smoke and either dying or dead. A helicopter hovered nearby, capturing footage for the film crew, and they could see the billowing black smoke coming up from the roof and the circle of onlookers around the building. And everyone was stunned when a police officer broke past the barricade and went running to the front door. It was already well charred so that it caved in with the first kick. And he ducked down onto his hands and knees to get underneath the deafening, blinding, suffocating smoke. And he forced his way into the building. And the deeper he went into the building, the hotter the air became until it burned his lungs. And the flames were getting closer and closer. And he could see that there was another room, but the ceiling had partially caved in. Peeking through the rubble, he could see there were bodies on the other side. And so, being burned himself, he began to force his body between the rafters that had come down to get to the bodies. When he arrived at the first one, it was dead. And the second and the third was the same. But when he got to the fourth, he could sense a pulse. The body was bleeding. He was unconscious and limp, but his legs were pinned under a beam. And so he shoved his shoulder against the beam. And when he did, part of the ceiling collapsed with embers down on top of his head. The glowing coals worked their way down underneath his coat, and it burned and scarred the skin on his back. He hit the beam again until it began to jar a little bit and finally pulled this prisoner free. After pulling the gun out of his limp fingers, he stooped down and with great effort began to lift this criminal up onto his shoulders. He looked to the left and the right and there seemed to be no way out until he spotted daylight coming through the next room. There was a window. And so with all of the adrenaline pumping and surging through his veins, he forced his way towards the window. His vision became tunneled. All he could see was daylight. From the outside, the law enforcement could see, coming through the smoke, a silhouette figure getting closer and closer. The crowd began to cheer. They could see that he was carrying somebody, and suddenly his silhouette collapsed. Because... As this police officer was pushing towards the window, the criminal on his shoulders came to consciousness and found himself. He looked down and he saw a badge and he looked out the window and he saw justice had surrounded the building demanding his complete surrender. And in a last ditch effort for freedom, the criminal grabbed the police officer around the throat and strangled him right there. The ceiling caved in and the building was lost entirely, both of them dying. When we look at the cross, one of the perspectives that we forget 
is that Jesus gave his life not for the ignorant, not for the lost or the confused. Jesus sacrificed his life for the mutinous, the rebels, the sinners, those that shouted, crucify him. If we're going to look at the cross tonight, the culmination of the entire Bible, we have to look at it in the right lens. Jesus came for the worst. Humanity thought for sure that we were pursuing freedom in our rebellion against God. C.S. Lewis says that human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something besides God to make him happy. And if I could, I would add on the word free. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God to make him happy and free. And so sovereign God in righteousness spoke a just and righteous curse over our representatives, Adam and Eve, who had rebelled against God. And God in his righteousness also spoke mercy and a blessing. And right there at the beginning of human history, we read in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, God projects the cross. He's speaking to the serpent that has deceived Eve, that has tipped a domino into human slavery. And he tells the serpent that you're going to crawl on your belly all the days of your life. This is not how snakes lost their legs. This is the symbolism of defeat. You will eat dust. And I'll tell you how. You see this woman that you deceived? One of her descendants, a male heir of Eve. The day will come, you're going to bruise his heel. It'll be a wound. But he, in turn, will crush your head for a fatal blow. At the very beginning of our plight into self-destruction, God promised a hope. And then he wrote history to look towards this promise. Several chapters later in Genesis 12, God promises Abraham that through Abraham, of all those living on the earth, it'll be through Abraham that he will bless all of the nations. This heir is not only going to free from sin and death, it'll also be a blessing, a mercy, and a grace to all nations. In Genesis 49, of Abraham's descendants, The focus comes in on the tribe of Judah, that Judah would be the great, 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 great granddaddy. And this one to come would be a king. Second Samuel, you find out that this king will come through David's line, but he's not just going to be a human king. He'll be a human king who reigns forever, suggesting divinity. Numbers 24 and 9, this king's birth will be recognized by something strange in the sky. It'll be a star that marks his birth. Isaiah 7.14, he'll be identifiable also because his birth will be a miracle born through a virgin. Micah 5.2, he'll be born in a very specific but unique place in Bethlehem. Deuteronomy 18.28, he'll be like Moses, fulfilling the roles of Moses. Psalm 22, he'll be mocked, he'll suffer, his clothes will be gambled for. Daniel 9, 24 through 26, gives a calendar narrowing down the year that the Messiah would die. Isaiah 53, he would be pierced and he would die, but death itself could not hold him. Matthew 16, 17, 20, and 26, Jesus himself prophesies his own death, giving the where, the how, the who, the when. And the why of his death. Right down to the day. To the perpetrators. Why? Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Not the good people, not those that have it together. Not those who have a really, really great mask on. No, we all fall in the category of rebels. We were all the criminal hiding out, fighting for freedom against the one reaching to us. 
Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners in rejection and rebellion, Christ died for us. You see, mercy is not getting a punishment you deserve. Grace is receiving a blessing you do not deserve. When we look at the cross, we see that we deserved hell and God withheld his wrath. That's mercy. That Jesus would choose you and I, that Jesus would make us heirs of heaven to walk in his presence, that's a blessing. Matthew has three major themes. The first is that Jesus is king, who even surpasses David. The second is that he came to break the curse of sin and death. The third is that through Jesus, he offers redemption, citizenship into his kingdom to anyone, even, maybe even especially, the unlikely. All three of these themes are going to be seen so plainly tonight as we look at the cross. Just a quick recap. We talked about the Lord's Supper last week. Oh, it's so beautiful. Oh, I love it. Jesus would go on to talk about how Peter was going to deny him three times. He even told Peter when he would deny him. Jesus would go to the Garden of Gethsemane and be there that he would pray, that he would ask God if this cup of wrath would pass by him and then surrender to God's will. It would be in that same garden that Judas would come out of the dark with soldiers and kiss Jesus on the cheek, the kiss of betrayal. Peter was going to pull the sword and try to fight off these soldiers. But Jesus is going to heal the man whose ear was cut off from Peter's outburst. Jesus is going to go willingly with the high priests and the soldiers to his court case and to his trial. A sham trial they set up in the middle of the night simply to convict him. Jesus is tried by the high priest in the council where he does not speak. People line in bringing lies and false accusations. And again and again and again, Jesus doesn't respond until they ask him straightforward, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus very pointedly says, you're going to see the son of man sitting in glory. And then he doesn't speak anymore. Eavesdropping on this sham midnight court case is Peter, who gets cornered by some servant girls who accuse him of being Jesus' disciple. And he gets cold feet and denies Jesus three times and runs into the dark. And now at the end of this sham case, they decided for sure they're killing Jesus. They've got all they need, except they're under Roman rule. The Jews are not allowed to kill anybody. They're going to have to convince Rome to do the dirty work for them. So they hash this plan to project Jesus as a saboteur, as treason, running treason against Rome, as a rebel, a zealot against Rome. And so they can attach to him the phrase king of the Jews. It means that he's setting himself up as king instead of Caesar. And so this is their plan, and they lead Jesus to the governor of Judea, Governor, Ju- Governor Pilate. And this is their accusation. We want him to be murdered by Rome as a rebel against Rome. That's their plan. So they bring him to Pilate, and that's where we're going to pick up our story. It was Governor Pilate's job to keep the peace. Any uprising of the Jews was on him. Rome would punish him if there was any sort of rebellion, any sort of mob outbreak except he keeps believing Jesus to be innocent. But the people keep demanding his death. Finally, Pilate looks into the eyes of Jesus and says, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus simply says four words. You have said so. Other than this, Jesus continues to be silent. And yet the mob continues to get crazier and crazier. Insurgence is at his doorstep. And this is where we're going to pick up in Matthew 27, verse 15. Verse 15, now at the feast of the governor, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had been, there had been a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Two things I want you to recognize about this. One, Barabbas is a notorious criminal. He is a thief, and he actually has been arrested for being a rebel against Rome. 
He's actually there for the crime they're accusing innocent Jesus of. He has been sentenced to be crucified. And second, Pilate, to win the favor of the Jews, has every year at the Feast of Passover delivered back to the Jewish people one of their prisoners that had been arrested over the past year. And it was a way that he could win favor with the people to keep them from starting an outrising. And he's hoping that this is going to free Jesus. He even has Jesus whipped, hoping that will appease the people enough so he can set Jesus free and not have to crucify him. Verse 17. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, the rebel, the thief, the murderer? Or Jesus, who is called Christ, the Messiah? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. The religious leaders had turned Jesus over because they were envious of the people's hearts turning towards Jesus and away from them. Pilate sees, he reads between the lines of this is why Jesus is here. The religious leaders loved basking in their self-righteousness. They loved having power over people and over influencing people. And so whenever Jesus' authority came up against the authority of the religious leaders... Religious leaders hated it. Verse 19. Besides, while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, this is so strange, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. What's happening here in this courtroom with Pilate is happening on such a cosmic level that even a pagan unrelated to the court case, is being disturbed by dreams in her sleep. Stuff is happening here. It is having a rippling effect. And we're going to see even more of that to come. Verse 20. I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. We see the chief priests loving their influence. They're loving having the, the puppet strings to the crowd. They glory in it. But at the same time, we need to be cautious that we don't see the crowd as just innocent, being swayed. Because we see the heart of the crowd here as well. They're not innocent. They're not just deceived. They're fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy from last week that the sheep themselves have become wicked and it's beginning to bubble to the surface. You see, whoever... What's actually in our hearts when we are squeezed will come out. No matter how pretty our mask, no matter how disciplined we think we are, whenever life squeezes us, when the Lord disciplines us, or sometimes whenever things are going really, really well, It's amazing how something much uglier than what we're portraying will surface. And we're seeing their hearts. Give us Barabbas. And just like the criminal in the opening story tonight, they are determined to murder the very one who has come to save them. This is a critical moment here. This is the fork in the road. All of Scripture is leading to this Moment, 4,000 years of history have been woven together for this pinnacle instance. And Pilate said to them, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, all the louder, let him be crucified. Isn't it ironic that a pagan who prays to Caesar as God recognizes the innocence of Jesus. While the Jews who are chosen by the living God who are given the prophets, the scriptures, and the promises are calling out for his death. This is a symbolic moment. This is a critical moment. The mob is revealing the rebellion in every man's and every woman's heart. Because had we been there and our authority over our lives was challenged, 
I think we might be lying to ourselves if we would say we wouldn't join the crowd. Because we want control over our own lives. I want to be the captain of my ship, the master of my destiny. You can't tell me what to do. This is the mantra of the American dream. No one has control over me. Unless there's a sickness, you want me to wear a mask. Before our hearts have experienced the metamorphosis of atonement, before we went through the chrysalis of Christ's death and resurrection spiritually inside of us, our greatest goodness was nothing more than a facade. It's a mask covering that selfishness. So the crowd shouted, freedom for the rebel. We want our own autonomy and death for the Savior. Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. You see it too at yourselves. This was his symbol of finding no guilt in Jesus and putting the responsibility wholly on the crowd. They're the ones responsible. Pilate, ironically, was the last resistance to evil having its way with Jesus. And now, he's going to be abused and murdered by the very people he came to save. Those in the crowd will now be held, listen, those in the crowd will now be held accountable to God for the murder of his son. That should weigh on you a little bit. And then it gets worse. Verse 25. And all the people answered their response to his washing the hands. Their response was, his blood, let it be on us and let it be on our children. Think about Abel. Go back to Genesis. Abel's blood, his innocent blood, cried out from the ground to God against Cain, his murderer. How much greater will the blood of Christ call out against those who murdered him and crucified him when his very purpose was to love and to sacrifice. This is the most terrifying statement they could have ever said aloud. And yet it is the most clear reality of everyone who rejects Jesus as Lord of their lives. John three seventeen through 19 We know John three sixteen well, but let's keep reading. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works, when they're squeezed, what's true, their works are evil. And the people confirm their responsibility with their own mouths and they invoke a curse on themselves and they invoke a curse on their children in the blood of God. If there, I don't know, if there are degrees of God's judgment and punishment in hell, how horrifying would the fate be for those who called for the death of Jesus Christ, the jewel of heaven, the innocent lamb. Verse 26, then Pilate released them, released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus and delivered him to be crucified. What's going on with this Barabbas and Jesus exchange? Jesus became the substitute for Barabbas' crimes and Barabbas was freed. This is a spiritual metaphor. This is a physical metaphor for what's happening in the spiritual Because Jesus became the substitute for our sin so we could be freed. We were set free. Jesus was put in chains. We were given life. Jesus, death. The jewel of heaven traded for us. Matthew goes on to hit us with a barrage of kingly symbolism because he loves to show Jesus as king. And let's jump down to Matthew 27, 45 through 50. 
Jesus has been mocked. He's been tortured and beaten. They put a scarlet robe on him. They jammed a crown of thorns into his head. They put a reed in his hand and made fun of him, calling him the king of the Jews. They even pinned a sign over his head, calling him the king of the Jews. They nailed him to a cross. They dropped the cross into its place. And they hung him between two robbers. And now, hours later, pushing up against the nail in his feet to breathe, bleeding out from his back and brow and hands, we come to this moment at high noon when it should be brightest during the day. Matthew 27, 45 through 50. Now, from the sixth hour, that's 12 o'clock lunchtime, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, and it's a psalm where David feels entirely alone. But through this Psalm 22, David goes from feeling alone and abandoned, and by the end, he comes to the point of recognizing that the Lord has never left him. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. This is language intentionally written to make it clear to us that Jesus was not an accident. Jesus was not under the control of anyone. Jesus was in complete authority from beginning to end. And I'll prove it to you in a second. He gave up his life. He didn't lose it. He gave it. All his detractors, the chief priests, the elders, the crowd, the mob, the soldiers, the very gates of hell thought they had won. And yet God had predestined this to be according to his will for the highest victory. Listen to this. This is Acts 4, verse 24 through 28. Follow along with me. The apostles are praying and they're speaking to God. And they said, When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, listen, right now, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it, who who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, this city Jerusalem, there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Father, you anointed him. And both Herod and Pontius Pilate came against him, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, listen to this, whatever your hand, your hand, God, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. When all of them thought that they had victory, when they thought that Jesus was under their control, when their puppet strings were tied to him, they were every moment of this, walking in the perfect will of God for his purpose, to defeat sin and death and crush the head of that ancient tempter from the beginning of time. In that moment, Matthew 27, 51 through 54 Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom, the earth shook. The rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, those standing by the cross, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Nature itself, the spiritual realm, the dead, and even the Gentiles standing by are being affected, are quaking from the inside out at the happenings that they're seeing. What's going on is not a simple man dying for crimes. It's the Son of God himself 
has died on the cross. And the cosmos and all of creation are being torn apart from the inside out. His innocence is rippling through every heart. And you know the end of the story. We get to talk about it at length next week. Oh, what a joyous day. We get to celebrate it here in a few days on Easter Sunday morning. But I think there's a story arc here that you might miss if you're just reading right through without slowing down a few times. And I want to show you something that is fascinating. God's mercy, God's grace, and God's fascinating, profound, unconditional love is displayed on how he reaches out and redeems the unlikely. Who are the most unlikely? How unlikely can they be? I want to take a look. I want to back up and rewind for a minute and follow a story arc that we might have missed. Let's rewind to the beginning of the week of Passover. Tens of thousands of Jews had traveled from all over the world to be in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. Jerusalem was busting at the seams. And Jesus comes up on the city and he sends several of his disciples to go and bring back a donkey. You know what I'm talking about? We just celebrated this this past Sunday. I want to look at three sightings of the crowd. And what is mind-blowing is that those in the crowd, from each of the three instances that we're going to look at, are mostly the same people. Matthew 21, 8 through 11, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, and the crowd recognizes Zechariah 8, 8, and they begin to lay those palm branches down. And they start shouting and singing and celebrating that the king and the Messiah they've waited for is marching through the gates, and he's coming in on a donkey like it was prophesied hundreds of years ago. It's happening in their midst. They're seeing it. Most of the crowd sped the spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! It means save us. Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds, grab that word, the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. In Galilee. Now let's fast forward 10 days. Matthew 27, 24 through 25, and we've read it tonight. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us. And our children, let him be crucified. The very same people that were cutting palm branches, that were marching in succession with Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem, shouting out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest. The same mouths that in one day were shouting his praises, ten days later are now shouting for his death. His blood be on us and our children. Crucify him. What happened to this wicked crowd? This crowd that is now under the severest of God's judgment for calling for the murder of his son. Let's fast forward. Jesus has died. He's resurrected. He's ascended. And his apostles are waiting on the Holy Spirit. And we're turning to Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes and rocks their hearts. The disciples go out into the streets and they're preaching about Jesus and everybody is wowed by the message they're bringing. And they're like, whoa, these guys must be drunk. They're crazy. And as the apostles are preaching about Jesus, all of these Jews from many different countries who spoke many different languages, for some reason, are hearing them in their language. Wouldn't that be cool? 
Let's pick up here. And I'm going to jump through a little bit for the sake of time. But this is such a beautiful sermon by Peter. You remember Peter? The guy who denied Jesus three times? In fact, one of those times when they said, no, I'm sure of it. You are one of the guys. It says that Peter, what? He curses. You know what that means? It means he swears an oath of his death if he's lying. Peter stood under the same weight. And it was Peter that Jesus sat down beside the seashore. And Peter, who is broken to face the one that he loved so much and yet denied him three times. And on the third time, Jesus and Peter made eye contact. Jesus, who is being lied against and betrayed and abused and hit in the face. The crushing weight on Peter's heart must have been unbearable. And Jesus would sit by him and say, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. I do love you. Then Peter, feed my sheep. I've got a mission for you, Peter. You have to get back in the game. You have to get back in the ring. There's a fight to be had. There's a mission to be held. Peter, do you love me? I do. I do, I do. Then Peter, go and take care of my people. Peter, do you love me? I do. Oh, Jesus, I do love you. And go, Peter. Run. Run for me. Three denials and three restorations. And Peter gets up on this morning. People are saying they're crazy. And Peter, who was once under a curse from his own mouth, turns to a crowd. And it's the crowd that has been gathered from all the nations for Passover. It's the crowd that yelled, Hosanna. It's the crowd who has yelled, crucify him. His blood be on us and on our children. And Peter, who understands the weight that they're feeling, who has been released by the very Son of God, now preaches a sermon. And he says this, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each was hearing them speak in their own language. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, and all of who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear at my words. Let's jump to verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter is not saying this generically. He's looking at the murderers of Jesus that you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are witnesses. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom, yes, you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? We feel the crushing weight. We know where we stand before a holy God. What should we do? And Peter said to them, listen carefully right now, elevate, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. Everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself. You who are under the curse can be free. Those So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 from the mob that yelled crucify him. Called on Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Do you see something beautiful here? They couldn't be saved unless Jesus had given his life for them. 
When they cried out, crucify him, they meant evil. But God meant good. And God's meant was greater than their meant. They were participators in God's plan of salvation. Yes, for them and for their children. His blood on their heads was a curse to damnation. Yet through the loving cross of Jesus, their salvation would be through his redemption in blood on their heads. The spotless lamb would sacrifice. The spotless lamb they sacrificed would provide the love and provide the blood to be painted over the spiritual doorposts of their heart so that God's infinite wrath would pass over them. What kind of love is this? Who is like our God? John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, the mutinous, biting sheep. Romans 5, 6 through 8, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Matthew has three major themes. Jesus is king. Jesus came to break the curse of sin and death. Jesus offers redemption to anyone, even the least likely. Peter, who denied Jesus three times, was unlikely. The Roman soldier was definitely unlikely. Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, unlikely. The crowd, Absolutely unlikely. You and I, we were unlikely. And Jesus left his throne. I'm not going to do it justice, but I'll do the best I can to relay to you a cool imagining from C.H. Spurgeon. When sinful man rebelled against God, it was necessary and it was right for God to punish sin. And the wages of sin is death. There's nothing else. And so God, in his justice, declared a curse against sin and death and those who would rebel against him in it. Now, this is an imagination. This is totally made up. But I want you to think with me. Imagine that God called court in heaven with the 10,000 of 10,000s and thousands on top of that, of all of the seraphim, the cherubim, the elders, the fiery beings, the creatures with their strange eyes and heads and wings, and he calls court, and they're all around the throne, and they're listening for the very voice of God, and he approaches them with an awful question. Man has sinned. Man stands opposed to me. Every man and woman in man and woman in sin stands opposed to me, and there is no pardon for their crime. Is there anyone? All the heavens, is there anyone who can carry the suffering and death? Is there anyone who can endure the crushing weight of infinite wrath against sin? This is the only way to free my, free my people from the curse. Who Shall it be? Who will go? I can only imagine all of heaven standing breathless. There wasn't a soul there that wouldn't, at the very whim of God, take flight and execute every bit of his will. Beings that can rock the foundations of the earth with their power, who stand ready to go for God, who are standing powerless to this question. Gabriel, who is that great messenger of heaven, speechless. Michael, who in valiant bravery stood against the very gates of hell, unable to move, knowing that he couldn't shoulder the redemption of man. Who will go? Who is worthy? No one is found for this impossible commission. I can't even imagine 
that they would ever conceived in their mind that God himself would put on flesh? How could they even imagine the mighty maker of the skies would bow his head and sink into the grave? The second person of the Godhead, the eternal word, the very son of God would stand up from his throne and shed his robes of eternal glory to put on the weakness of human flesh. He would humble himself to be a slave. He would set aside glory to offer grace. He would humble himself. He would respond, I will go and I will die. I love just imagining in this daydream, the shock of the angels. It must be hard to shock them when they saw God create with the very breath of his voice, who brought light into existence, who set up the foundations of the world. It must be tough to shock angels. And I love the idea of them standing wide-eyed and mouth open as the creator would step into his own creation. For while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, Christ would die for us. These angels had seen worlds created. How much deeper is their understanding of the character of God when they saw him do that? Elevate. Do you stand in awe of God becoming flesh? Do you stand shocked at the cross of Christ, of a grace poured out not for good, not for neutral, a grace that would be poured out in the ultimate sacrifice for sinners, for rebels, for those who cried out, crucify him. If heaven might have stood in awe, shouldn't we, those who are under the blood of Christ, for our sin? How often do you crumble to your knees in humility for that kind of love? How often does it grab you and turn you to want to surrender your life to him again and again? Your whole life belongs to a God of love like that. How often does it stir? As we come to Resurrection Sunday, oh, that you would be moved, that you would celebrate from your deepest being the fact that Jesus lives. Every promise of the Old Testament, all of heaven holding their breath, because if Jesus stays in the grave, it was all a lie. And with the sun of Sunday morning, Jesus validates ratifies and vindicates every word of God that was ever spoken and he vindicates and validates your salvation when he walks out of the grave. Before we knew him, before we ever did anything righteous or evil, he loved us and gave himself for us. I've got one challenge for you and it's a complex challenge. You're going to need the slide. We have that? I gave you journals tonight. And if you didn't get one, create for one for yourself. Take a picture of the screen. This is Matthew 26, 27, and 28, broken into seven chunks. Write in your journals, day one through seven. Jot down these verses. Have a Bible study every day for the next seven days, walking through the passion of Jesus. Study it out. Feel it. Breathe it. Remember the God who stepped out of heaven to die for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Could I, with my sinful mouth and my human body, ever offer you enough thanks? No. No the best of God is my whole life. Lord, turn your people in here to surrender again, to stand in awe of who you are, to quake at the incarnation 
at the crucifixion. And Lord, if there's anyone in here that does not know you as their Savior, oh Lord, that you would grab a hold of their hearts, that you would prick them, that you would pull the spiritual scales off of their eyes to see a God who loves them. Yes, it is a God who is requiring all. We do surrender our freedoms, our sovereignty, our desires for our lives, holy to you to be for your glory. Yes, that is a small price to to pay for the glory that you traded to die for us so that we could live in your presence for all of eternity. No more fear in death. Only hope. Walking in your presence in this life so that when we meet you in the next, your presence is familiar. We will have known you all along. This is as close to hell as we will ever get. It is nothing more than our launching pad into heaven. Oh, Lord, pursue those who are alive right now within the sound of my voice right now, that right now is as close to heaven as they will ever get. And there is only hell waiting for them. Lord, call them. Let them know and hear your voice. Wake them up from sleep. Turn their eyes to see light. Let them see Jesus on the cross who died for them. Do a work that only you can do because you go after the unlikely. Thank you, Jesus. our altar call that we usually do before worship or during worship. We're going to have it now. So I'd like to call up the leaders and you can come up for prayer for anything. If there's anyone in here that the word of God got a hold of your heart tonight, that you want to give your life to Jesus, the rest of your life to Jesus and commit yourself to him, come pray with one of our leaders. But the altar is also open if you'd like to pray for maybe a sick loved one or maybe someone that you know that doesn't know Jesus yet and you want to pray with someone for their salvation. Come on up and pray with one of these leaders. If there's anything else going on in your life that you just want prayer with, you just want someone to go before the throne of God with you, come on up and pray with them. Let's spend a few minutes together in prayer.
Hallelujah, Lord, most high God, King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no one like you. There is none beside you. You are infinite, God, so there is no room for another. Thank you, Lord, for your people. Thank you, Lord, for everyone in this room that we get to celebrate for all of eternity what you did for us. And Lord, if there's any in here that don't know you, Lord, grab them. Don't let them know peace until they've encountered the Prince of Peace. So Lord, that we get to have we get to have a reunion and not one member from tonight is missing. I love you, Lord. Lord, touch your people. Let us be light and salt. Let the mission of the cross drive us every day. And may we live for the highest goal of mankind, and that is to give you glory and to enjoy you forever. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.